Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. You are recording, right? I am recording. Breaking news, the U.S. Supreme Court has just issued a decision on the Texas law that prohibits abortion after about six weeks. Bit of a mixed outcome here. As all of this is happening on the merits, right, the laws are being heard by the justices. There's this parallel conversation happening about the politics of it all. To an extent, I think you have uh, the conservative majority really sort of feeling its oats now, for lack of a better term, and feeling that, look, these are things that we've had objections to for a long time, and we're not going to be bashful about delving into these issues and taking whatever steps we think are appropriate. Mm. We've seen the court take two major abortion-related disputes in one term, which in and of itself is unusual. Usually they take one abortion-related case every few years. I'm Annie Reese. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Josh Gerstein, Politico's senior legal affairs reporter, on what we saw from the Supreme Court's ruling on Friday. The Supreme Court said that those people who are challenging Texas's tough, privately enforced abortion ban can continue with their challenge to that law in federal court, but the justices shut down what could be the most efficient way of blocking that law. It all starts with SB8. So SB8 went into effect on uh, September 1st, and it basically said that private individuals could sue anyone involved in facilitating an abortion in the state of Texas if that abortion took place at six weeks of gestation of the fetus or later. Um, Mm. That's a point that the advocates of the law refer to as a heartbeat provision, the notion that there's some cardiac activity from most fetuses around six weeks gestation. That That's basically what the law said. The impact of it was much broader than that because abortion providers across the state of Texas became very, very worried that they were going to face the threat of not one or two, but perhaps hundreds or thousands of lawsuits. And in each one, the plaintiff is entitled to $10,000 at a minimum, if they can show an abortion like this took place. The vigilante law, it got dubbed, right? Yeah, some people refer to it that way because the person who's interjecting themselves in the situation doesn't have to have any connection whatsoever to the abortion, to the child, to the mother, to the father. None none of these things uh, are required. Basically, a random person off the street. I think one of the first suits was filed by a fellow who's uh, in federal prison in Arkansas that Mm. shows you how remote from the situation you can be and still try to take action under this Texas law. Okay, so what did Friday's decision change and why does it matter? So Friday's decision basically addressed what mechanism the abortion clinics and uh, abortion providers can use to challenge this Texas law. This law was written in a way to try to prevent it being challenged in federal court. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court here said by a vote of eight to one, yes, you can continue with a federal court lawsuit over this particular Texas statute. The wrinkle here and the reason why it's not a very satisfactory ruling for abortion rights advocates is that a majority of the Supreme Court, five to four, 
basically said the only people you can sue are some Texas state officials that kind of uh, do licensing mm-hmm. for doctors. And, you know, maybe after you receive the $10,000 penalty in one of these lawsuits, it's reported to that board and that board might take, you know, action, disciplinary action against you as a doctor. The thing is that that comes at the very end of the process. And so the notion that the abortion rights advocates are going to be able to use a lawsuit like that to try to block this law now is just not very satisfying. What they were trying to do was to have an order put in place that would forbid Texas state court judges and Texas state court clerks from accepting these lawsuits. And obviously, that would be a much more effective way of shutting down this Texas law. If you can't Mm -hmm. file one of these suits, um, the law would basically be nullified. So the justices didn't allow that most effective way of challenging this law to continue. On the ground, it probably means that this law stays in place for many more months. I don't know, three months, six months, Mm. nine months. It, It could even be longer. One reason that it's unclear is we have another abortion case waiting in the wings that was already argued at the Supreme Court. And if they sort of change the rules overall nationwide for abortion, it's very difficult to predict how that would play out in what anyone listening to this conversation can tell is already a very complicated litigation environment around the Texas statute. Did anything about Friday's decision surprise you? And as a longtime legal affairs reporter, was it at all difficult for you to frame what happened? It just seemed kind of like this messy, complicated decision, in which case it's difficult to determine ultimate decisive winners or losers. Yep, yep. It's one of the more difficult ones to get a quick take on that I've encountered in the last 10 years of doing this, this kind of stuff. Mm. You know, we do get these decisions sometimes that are kind of cryptic. So I'm not that surprised by it. But there was sort of an oscillation back and forth at the beginning of the reporting on it in terms of who won. You know, everybody wants to know who won. Yeah. Can you put it in 280 characters or whatever for Twitter or whatever they allow you? And what's, you know, what's the headline? Right. And it's not, in this case, it's not really that simple. I mean, if you had to boil it down, technically speaking, the abortion rights advocates side of this debate technically won in an eight to one decision. But as we've been discussing, in terms of if your concern is about the immediate impact of this law, which has now been in effect for more than three months, and now looks like it may continue for another six months or so, maybe before we get a resolution on its constitutionality, it's sort of a victory for those who wrote the law. You know, people who wrote this law didn't do it thinking that it would survive a challenge at the Supreme Court. Mm. They did it thinking that they had a creative way that would allow it to remain on the books longer than other abortion bans or restrictions have. And in that sense, they succeeded and they succeeded more through this decision at the Supreme Court. So it's very difficult to say, you know, who's the flat out winner and who's the flat out loser in Friday's decision. It's it's just much more nuanced than that. And you can't really boil it down very easily. To pivot to something slightly different, we just saw California Governor Gavin Newsom announce a law based off of SB8, but targeting guns. Can you just briefly outline what that bill was about and whether we could expect a similar fate where the Supreme Court will need to rule on it? Right. So I haven't seen any text of what Gavin Newsom is proposing, but he did say that he's going to urge that California pass a 
law on gun rights that would basically put in restrictions, uh, I think was on assault weapons or uh, ammunition, this kind of thing, and that this would be enforced privately through private lawsuits in the state of California. And the idea, frankly, which had come up at the arguments at the Supreme Court over this Texas abortion law is this approach to enforcement, vigilante, as you called it, or Mm -hmm. private party enforcement. Uh, Some people call it sometimes private attorney general. You basically are acting as an attorney general for the state, just yourself. You know that they're going to use that mechanism to enforce it. And I guess they recognize that under Supreme Court jurisprudence that those gun restrictions uh, are probably unconstitutional at the federal level. But so what? Like, you know, we'll pass this law and we'll make people potentially liable and scare them out of having these kinds of weapons for a period of months. And presumably the federal courts won't step in to block it because they'll use the same notion that, you know, it's not not really their role to intervene in disputes between private individuals. You know, those are usually handled in state courts and they will step back and uh, the litigation will, will proceed in state court and maybe at a pace that's slow enough that a law like the one Newsom is proposing could remain on the books again for three months, six months, a year or a year and a half maybe before it's struck down, and in the meantime would have the intended effect. I mean, this is one of the the fears that some people put forward at the Supreme Court arguments, not only in this area of gun rights, but you could see it in all kinds of First Amendment contexts where you could say, well, I know the, the government can't do this, but we can let private individuals do it and see how that works out. And it was something that not only the three liberal justices warned about in the Friday decision, but also Chief Justice John Roberts warned about. And he was the only mm-hmm. Republican appointee of the six that are currently on the court who sided with the liberal Democratic appointees in saying he would have allowed a more forceful challenge to the Texas abortion law to continue. Mm-hmm. What does what we learned on Friday tell us about where the Supreme Court is now and what's ahead? Well, it's kind of tea leaves in terms of future abortion rulings. The main one that we're waiting on is a case out of Mississippi uh, Mm -hmm. that was argued on December 1st and involves a 16-week ban on abortions after 16 weeks of gestation. And that's sort of the most aggressive one that the Supreme Court has taken up up till this point. Uh, You know, it's there's nothing explicitly changing abortion-related jurisprudence in this decision, except that they declined to sort of give it a kind of special status in this decision. The the federal courts have sometimes allowed, for example, in the context of First Amendment uh, fights, this notion of a chilling effect, and that if a law Mm. has a chilling effect, it might be blocked in a way that, that most statutes are not. And they declined to apply that you know, they didn't say that's because we think Roe v. Wade should be overturned or rolled back or we're about to do that in another decision. But if these were justices that really felt that abortion rights were entitled to a high level of constitutional respect, I don't think you would have seen the justices in the majority, you know, the five of them that basically adhered to the more conservative position here. I don't think you would see them sign off on the Texas decision if they uh, had grave concerns about rolling back abortion rights. So it's certainly um, from the point of view of the pro-life or anti-abortion forces, I think they'd view it as another positive sign that they are enjoying new traction at the Supreme Court and probably a good omen for the decision uh, from their perspective, from the decision that's coming in this Mississippi case. Although that decision we may not see until 
um, sometime next year, perhaps as late as late June or early July. Josh Gerstein, thank you so much for joining me. Happy to do it, Annie, anytime. Also today, the Senate is expected this week to vote on raising the debt limit and the National Defense Authorization Act. And more than 100 people are feared dead after a tornado outbreak ripped through parts of the South and the Midwest this weekend, including Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Ohio, and Tennessee. Many of the fatalities occurred at a family-run candle factory in Mayfield, Kentucky, that was flattened, with an estimated 110 people inside. Officials are still working to determine the scale of the damage and the number of lives lost. Today's episode of Politico Dispatch included music composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Be sure to follow Politico Dispatch if you haven't yet, and if you can, leave us a rating and review. It helps more people find the show. I'm Annie Reese. Thanks so much for listening.